Welcome to the CX Fanatics podcast, the show that helps DTC businesses increase revenue, referrals, and retention through exceptional customer experience. Tune in weekly for interviews, insights, and inspiration that will catapult not only your profits, but your growth. I'm your host, Elisa Connor. Let's get into the show. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. This week, we are talking all about why setting up a great customer experience before people are customers is a great way to increase sales. And you may be thinking, how can we work on customer experience when they're not customers yet? Well, that's what we're going to learn today. So stay tuned. We're going to jump into, let's see, three different uh, ways that we're going to do that. And... I have lots of examples as well as uh, some action steps. I always try to give you guys action steps to move forward. So if you're new to the podcast, I'm Lisa Connor, and I have been in the not only customer experience, but marketing world for over 20 years and have worked with mostly small businesses and entrepreneurs to increase not only sales, but also revenue and profits. Uh, usually by 65% on average in as little as 60 days. So if you're ready to do that with your business, whether you're in a subscription model business or you uh, are in the wine business, you are in the right place. So let's dive in. Why would you want to look at customer experience before people are customers? That seems a little bit out of place. Um, If you missed the episode I did last week on the difference between customer experience and customer service, you might want to tune into that. But basically, a lot of times customer experience and customer service are grouped together as the same thing, and they are very different. A customer experience is something that um, is specific to not only a specific customer and their journey through how they work with you, but also it is um, kind of the overarching umbrella that customer service fits under. So customer experience touches every single department in your organization, whether you have intentionally and strategically set that up or not. So talking about customer experience before people are customers is really quite um, not only important, but um, it's going to give you the advantage over some of your competitors because you've actually thought through, okay, so maybe they're not customers now, but they could become customers. And if they do, what kind of experience do we want them to have with us now so that we can ensure that they not only become a customer, but they they become a brand advocate that promotes us and tells other people about um, what we have done for them and that we would do for the people they know. Because as we all know, getting a new customer um, is significantly more expensive than selling to an existing customer. But also, if you have a happy existing customer, that's less money you have to spend on marketing and promotion and advertising and all of those things that cost um, cost us not only money, but time, energy, focus. And we want to make sure that the actions that we're putting into uh, place are actually delivering some sort of results and we're measuring those things. Very, very important. Measure those things. Because if you're just sitting there posting on social media every day and it's not leading anywhere, you're really not um, making effective use not only of your time, but of your online landscape. So before we go too far down that rabbit hole, let's talk about ways that we have probably been taught to market um, and taught to attract customers. 
Now, with all the good intentions that people have, we have to learn as we go. And a lot of times we've been taught things that aren't necessarily going to be effective for us now because they were based on information that we had gathered or that the people that taught us had gathered um, at a different time in history. Now, things have changed dramatically in the last specifically three to four years. Um, Part of that is due to COVID. Part of that is due to the drastically increasing speed of which information and um, the internet is changing the way that the world operates. But also um, we have a giant change in the buyer's market right now. And so we have a whole new market of people that are coming of age that are actually going to be um, significant consumers from here on out. But also um, we have a significant group of people, the baby boomers who are on their way out and are not purchasing as much um, because they either don't need it. They, their kids don't want it. um, They're reaching, you know, kind of end of life status. um, They're at a, at a place where they want to downsize. And so they aren't really in the same consumer um, mind frame so much as they're the younger counterparts that um, are in generations behind them. So when we're looking at how we market to customers that aren't customers yet, the first thing we need to do is get really specific because if you've been on the internet lately, which I would imagine you have, most people wake up, that's the first thing they do, is um, it's really hard to stand out in a marketplace when you're not specific. And so the people that are finding traction are getting really, um, they're getting really good results because they are being really specific. So let's look at an example. If you are somebody who is, say, a runner and you um, are running triathlons and marathons and even like local um, 5Ks and things like that, the chances are that when you go shopping um, for shoes for that particular activity, you are not looking at shoes that would be fashionable. You're looking at shoes that are going to support your arches. You're looking at um, shoes that are going to withstand, depending on how the length of the race withstand and give you comfort through a long race. You're looking for um, shoes that are going to work on a specific type of um, ground, whether it's pavement or um, gravel, or uh, I'm trying to think of the other like path kind of um, material, because all of those elements play a factor in in what kind of shoes you're going to purchase. So if you're, say, for example, from Colorado, um, you may encounter any or all of those things on one single run. And depending on where you live and where you're training and all of those things. And so you're probably wanting to have a pair of or multiple pairs of tennis shoes that are focused on running. So if, for example, you are a runner that is um, 40 plus versus a runner that is 20 plus, your needs, your desires, your income, they're all at a very different level than somebody who is just first starting out in their career, say early 20s. So somebody that's late late 40s, early 50s, they have a totally different mindset and um, thought process about how they're purchasing and their needs are different because their body is different. They have probably, they probably have beat it up a little bit um, <laughs> because they've been doing these races. And so they're looking at different um, components when making that purchase. So 
for a company like Keds, for example, to throw an ad in front of that person because they see that they're shopping for shoes and tennis shoes is going to be completely futile because that person isn't looking for Keds. They are looking for shoes that are going to help them train and run the race and do their best and possibly um, beat their previous time or whatever their goal is for that race. And so when you can speak to that, that person specifically, that is 40 to 45 to 50, and they have these aches and pains, they um, get out of bed and their knees hurt and they get out of bed and, you know, they can't run quite as fast as they used to, or, you know, whatever the things are for your particular, for that particular client. And you can speak to them in a language that makes it so personal that they wake up and they go, how does this person know (laughs) that I'm feeling all of these things and that this is what's going on in my head. Like, I really don't want to get out of bed. I just want to curl back in under the covers and drink a cup of coffee, but I know I need to do this. Um, that is so much more powerful than dreaming up a buyer persona that it could be. I want um, to encourage you as a business to stop playing the could be game. Instead, it's much more powerful for you to actually go back and see who your customers are, what um, influence their buying decisions, where they are um, before they work with you so that you know kind of the problems they're coming in with. And the more you can gather that data and specific examples of their language, the more powerful your copywriting becomes for anything that you put out on the internet, whether that is social media or your advertising um, copy or your website copy or all of those different things. And so I want to um, compel you to stop using buyer personas. Instead, actually get to know your buyers. And the way you can do that um, is by asking questions. And it doesn't have to be a prearranged survey. It doesn't have to be something so complicated. You can start asking those questions on social media. Make use of your audience and start asking and um, gathering that data. And the more specific data you can gather, specific words, specific phrases, specific language, and you can put it somewhere so you have it when you need it, um, the more powerful uh, and impactful you're going to show up and be in your marketplace. So when you have those generic buyer personas that we've all been taught to create, and the same as with our customer journey, we were taught to create these customer journeys that are kind of made up in our own minds. Instead of that, we should actually be focused on what was the actual journey for our previous customers. And when we can do that, it becomes much more powerful because the chances that one customer is going to have the same journey as another customer are much um, higher than some make-believe land where you have made up a customer journey that doesn't exist. And so um, when we can get really specific and personalized with our data, we're going to automatically be more specific. And that data, when we can get it from our customers, we're not so dependent on the algorithm or on um, the powers that be to show our customers who we are and what we're doing. And I'm not saying that that can be a bad thing, but I'm saying that you will have a harder time standing out to them because that's what everyone is doing. And they're going to show like accounts. And so when you can really... Um, kind of get up in their grid and and show them right off the bat that you know who they are, what they're doing and what they're struggling with, 
the chances that they're going to resonate with you versus some other random account that shows up is going to be much, much higher. And so getting really specific and leaving the generic um, customer avatar or um, customer buying journey behind and getting more specific about who it is that you help and how you help them by looking backwards at who uh, you've worked with and all of those sorts of things is going to be much more powerful, not only for your language, but also for your entire experience, because people are more apt to relate and um, connect to an actual experience versus a made up experience. So that's number one is, you know, let's quit the generic buyer personas. And instead, let's get really specific with who, um, who we have worked with and who we want to work with and then create language and um, experiences around those pre those past um, journeys so that we can make future journeys for future customers similar and um, more personable. Because not every customer journey is going to be um, exactly the same but they will be similar, especially if you're really specific about who your customers are. So that's number one. Number two is that, um, and this is really, really important, and 90% of businesses that I work with don't do this, um, is that you have to gather data. Like you can't just wing it and hope and pray that things are working. And it's um, data gathering, especially for people that are um, smaller businesses or, um, even marketers like data gathering can just be uh, such a chore. Like most people do not, they're like, Oh, I can't wait to sit around and, and analyze the data. But the data gives you the power to make decisions with, um, proven information. And so when you can gather your data and you can see, um, and more importantly, not only gathering data, but gathering data that is significant. And so a lot of times people will look, um, for example, at their social media and they'll say, oh, I posted a reel and it got 5,000 views. Well, if none of those views were click throughs to your website or an actual order or somebody that has commented to say, hey, I'd like to buy, but I don't know how, um, those views aren't really helping you grow your business. They're not leading to profit. And so many times there are, um, accounts that I look at and they put out great content and they're really working hard and they're putting out new things. Um, but then when it comes to actually going to move forward to work with them or in some capacity, learn more about their company, they make the journey so difficult or almost impossible that if somebody is not adamant about figuring out how to work with you, they're just going to give up and go find someone else to solve their problem. And so we want to make the entire journey for someone easy and um, simple. And we don't want to make it a lot of work because people are busy. They don't have time to track things down. They just want a simple, easy, quick solution to solve their problem. And then you have the opportunity to build on that relationship once you have made it easy for them to say yes. And sometimes a yes isn't a purchase. It's a micro yes. It's a yes, I want more information, or it's a yes, I want to read that, or it's a yes, um, I want to um, take a quiz, or it's a yes, I want to find out the information about this, or whatever. So I have an example of this. So recently, I um, have been planning a surprise party for my mom's 80th birthday, my aunt and I, and 
Um, I'm sure she won't listen to this because she never listens to the podcast. So, but it's coming up in a couple of weeks. And so to plan this, it wasn't going to be anything extravagant. She just, she didn't really want a party, but we just wanted to do something. Um, and so I found a restaurant that um, had a private room and it's, uh, it's, it's a fairly nice restaurant. And I wanted to uh, figure out how to make a reservation, what the, you know, how to plan this party. Well, the problem was, is that you call because there's no information to email people or to make reservations online. So you have to call, there's no form, there's nothing. And you call and they're like, oh yeah, don't leave a message if you want to make a reservation because we won't return your call. And I was like, oh my God, do I even want to have this here? Um, So they made it so challenging for me to try and move forward with this that I was like, God, this would be so much easier if you just had a form on your website, told them you'd get back to them in 48 hours, had a calendar that they could pick, make it a minimum of, um, you know, the number of people that they can choose and then let them do all their, their menu choices and everything on your website. Because right now it's like been all of these emails back and forth and choosing the menus. And I have, you know, my aunt and I are planning it together. So I have to get together with her and ask her questions. And, and it's just been a challenge. So if given the option to do business with these people again in the future, um, I would probably look for someone else. And unfortunately, especially in the hospitality industry, that's the norm. Like there is not a uh, restaurant I can think of off the top of my head that makes it easy for you to order, to get information, to um, not have to jump through hoops to go to multiple websites, to place your order. Like some of the fast food places have it down, but as far as restaurants, I can't think of one example off the top of my head that it is easy to do all of those things. Um, especially if you're having a larger gathering, they really want you to go and talk with someone. So make it easy for that person to have a conversation with you, whether you have a chat bot set up or you have, um, you know, a, a pretty, uh, conclusive form that you're gathering data from, or, you know, just getting people through the process easily, you know, which takes us right back to gathering data because the more data you can gather about somebody and their experience and their needs and their wants, it's not only beneficial for that customer and that experience, but it also helps you to refine future experiences, which is really what we're talking about here. Because if you are taking the time to gather that data, to put it in a, um, a hub for lack of a better term, so that anybody in your organization can access it, then you have the opportunity to go back and go, okay, well, this person said um, that they liked this. And we know now that, you know, we're offering five different entrees, but 90% of people only choose these three. So what's wrong with these two? Or should we just get rid of these two? Because we're still purchasing food for these two options. But, you know, how do we mix it up a little bit? And maybe you go back and say, okay, well, why didn't you choose these two? We're just curious. We want to find out, you know, and maybe it's price and maybe it's like, nah, most people don't like that. Or maybe it's, um, you know, that's going to be too hard to have at a party um, or, you know, whatever. So if we're using that same example, like they had um, options for um, desserts, they had two different options and then they had like hand appetizers. But the way that they explained their hand appetizers was so confusing because it was like, okay, it's this many it's, you know, $3 for each one for, um, 
you know, this many pieces, so you have to buy this many. So you would need to buy, you know, this many for your party. And I was like, just tell me how many appetizers I would need for 15 people. What is the average of appetizers? Like, do people eat two? Do they eat three? They're going to have dinner. Like, I don't know. And I don't want to sit there and figure it out. It's too much brain power. But instead, you could just say, okay, here's the appetizer uh, choices. You can do one to two pieces. It's this price for, for 15 people. It's two to three for this many people. Um, it's three to four appetizers for this many people. And then you probably won't want as big of a dinner or something. I don't know. But that wasn't easy and it wasn't simple. So I just said no appetizers. And they didn't make it easy for me to make those choices. And the um, I didn't want to go back and forth with more conversations to get the information because I just wanted to get this booked and move on. And so I'm hoping you can take from this example, not that I'm picking on this restaurant. I think they're going to do a great job, but um, their customer experience so far has not been great. And unless they really wow me at this party, I don't foresee being a long-term customer of theirs, which what a shame because we're going to spend, you know, a pretty substantial sum of money to have this party. And you would think that as a valued customer who's willing to invest money for, you know, this kind of occasion, they would want to make that customer experience more seamless. So learn from their example, do the opposite, Um, gather that data, any piece of information you can get, any kind of feedback, and don't rely on surveys because a lot of times people will get a survey, either one, they don't fill it out, two, they forget, three, it might be overhyped because um, a lot of more volatile situations will smooth out a little bit over time. Um, But last but not least, what I find with people that um, are gathering information with a survey is you're only getting the end result. You're not getting the information as the um, customers going through the process. And so sometimes, especially if you have a longer buying process, it's really important to gather that data throughout the process because there might be one broken piece that you're like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that this was a problem right here. I didn't know this was a hiccup. And so if you're not asking for feedback as people go through the process and gathering that and putting it somewhere, you don't know how to improve your process and you don't know how to improve your experience. So gathering data is really important. That's step number two. And then step number three uh, that goes along with that is that um, having a uniform place for that data to be gathered and a uniform template um, that it's not just like all thrown in their mishmash um, is going to be significantly more productive for you and your team. And sometimes that team is just one person, but I don't know how many times I've taken notes and then I go back and I try to figure out what I was talking about. And um, whereas if I have an actual template set up either in a Google doc or I use a a, a project management tool called ClickUp, um, it's similar to like an Asana or Monday or something like that, but I really like ClickUp. Um, So I can link that below if you guys are interested in that software, but What's nice about it is you can take notes and you can have a central hub to gather this information and just make it a project, make customer experience feedback a a project in that software, whichever software you choose. And then you have a designated place and a template set up where you're gathering specific information like 
um, for example, you could set up the template where you're having um, before the sale. Like, what are you doing before people um, are purchasing from you? Which is what this whole episode is about. And that's why this is a three-part series, because we're going to go through the entire sale. So if you're um, curious about during and after, stay tuned. Those episodes are coming in the next couple of weeks. But this week, um, you know, maybe take what you've learned from today's episode and just take some notes in there, create a little template and, um, you know, say, you know, what do we know about our customer? What do we know about previous customers that we can apply to future customers? What has their path been? And just start taking notes. And then when you have conversations or interactions with those customers um, that have purchased, just, you know, gather as much data as you can and put it into that template or um, that uh spreadsheet or whatever it is you're going to use to track this because you'll start to evaluate it and look through it and you'll see trends. And that is where it becomes more powerful because you know, if one person is having that experience, that's one thing. But if you have two, three, four, 10, 100 people having that experience, then it's something that probably needs your attention sooner than later. So um, that is tip number three is to create a template and a central hub to gather this information so that you can go back and evaluate it and look through it and look for trends and see, um, you know, what the similarities are. And if there's a huge difference, that's also a red flag. Like what happened with that person? Why are they having this experience and no one else did? Um, And a lot of times it can be really hard to look at a complainer in a um, more positive light because they're complaining. I mean, you're, most people would take that personally but you can learn a lot from the people that are complaining if you set aside the emotion and say, okay, so what are they, what's the, the actual cause underneath this of what, of what the complaint is. But, um, let me preface the, um, the complaint piece of that with, you have to go in with a little bit of neutrality and know that there are going to be people that just like to complain. And then there are people that complain that you can actually learn from. And so uh, don't be afraid to figure out that differentiation in your own way, but um, know that there are always going to be, one of the things I learned really early in my career was there's always going to be the five-star reviews that think you have hung the moon and everything, done everything right. You also have to take those with a grain of salt um, because really your learning potential is not from the super complainers and the five-star reviews. It's from the people in the middle because the people in the middle could easily go one direction or the other, depending on what their next experience is. So if you have like a three star or a three and a half star review, those are the people that you should really pay attention to because those are the people that actually have more than likely a viable complaint. And um, a really powerful exercise is to go find a competitor or someone that does something similar to what you do on Amazon, whether it's a book or, whatever, and just go read their three-star reviews because you will find so much information and intel about what's going on in your industry and um, what's going on, not just with your competitor, but probably um, huge problems that aren't being being addressed in those three-star reviews. And that is, to me, that screams opportunity. Like, why would you not go solve that problem better than that person? And, um, make a name for, you know, how you handle that. So the other piece of, and these are all kind of based under your um, buyer persona. So I wasn't, I'm not sure if I was clear about that, but these last three, three key points. So when you're gathering data 
and you're um, creating that template to track that. And then this last one, which is testing um, a hypothesis about what you think about customers and what you think the majority of them are um, struggling with. So for example, those three-star reviews, um, these are all kind of filtered under that uh, buyer personalization category. And so when you have evaluated that data, which nobody wants to sit and sift through data, and I'm not saying you have to do this for every customer, but, you know, go grab a, a good chunk of recent customers and see, you know, what their experience has been and then evaluate it. And if you don't have a huge chunk, then, you know, go, re go look at some of those reviews and see, um, and maybe they're not on Amazon. Maybe there's another, maybe there's Google or other places that you can go and look at three-star reviews and then put something out there that addresses those problems and don't make it this huge project. Don't make it this huge marketing initiative. Just put something out quickly that you can test and see if your hypothesis is right. So many times I see people go, oh no, we've got to create 25 different things to see if this works. But in reality, you put all of this effort into something that is a guess. And then if it doesn't pan out, you're so frustrated because you've invested time, you've invested money, you've invested energy. Um, and if it's not the right direction, you're going to know pretty quick without investing all of that uh, effort. You're going to realize really quickly, okay, oh, our hypothesis was not really on track. We need to tweak it and test that. And so I am all about like making micro changes to things. And if, especially if you're going in a new direction and you're looking at like, say some three-star reviews, don't spend months, weeks, years creating this excellent marketing strategy without actually going out and testing it because you're just going to get frustrated and be like, Oh, that wasn't it. This is a complete waste. Why am I doing this? And blah, blah, blah. Um, and the same could be said for regardless of whatever you're putting out there. So if it's a promotion, for example, you're putting out a promotion, 15% off. Nobody's, nobody wants 15% off. Well, that's because everybody's giving 15% off. <laughs> you know, everybody's having a Black Friday sale. It's like you got to think outside the box and you've got to test things without investing um, tons of financial resources and team resources and all of these other things. Um until you get some traction. And so when, especially if you're trying to really narrow in on your audience and figure out who they are, what they want. And um, if you have an audience that's changing as many people in the industry do, figuring that out before you invest a bunch of energy and time into it is going to pay off in the long run. So make some micro changes. I'm a big fan of micro changes. Like uh, for example, um, figure out, you know, a specific next step for people that are first coming into your world from social media. Like, what is that next step going to be? And it most likely isn't going to be buy um, from you unless they are a previous customer or they have a uh, friend, family member, coworker, whoever, who has 100% recommended you. But then the chances that they're going to follow you on social media and not just go buy it anyway are slim to none. So when you're thinking about your social media strategy, most people don't think past the post. I want you guys to start thinking about, okay, what would be the next logical step for them to take? And more often than not, it's not going to be to purchase. It's going to be a small micro yes. And so what's that next micro yes? Test that. 
Did that work? How many people did it work with? Did it look at your spreadsheet? These are the things that I want you guys to get into the practice of um, testing and thinking about as you're implementing. So um, with all of that customer knowledge and information that you've gathered before the sale, before people are even purchasing, then you have the opportunity to adjust or create a solution to the problem they want. And so you may be thinking, um, I already have a solution. I work with people. Um, we, we sell, for example, we have a wine club. We have a wine club and it works and we, we sell it and everybody that comes for a tour um, buys wine. I guess I just want to throw a wrench. <laughs> I want to throw a wrench into that belief. Okay, so um, most wineries have a very limited time span when they can offer tours or when tours are busy. And so when they enroll people in a wine club, most people will enroll in that wine club because they're excited. They're there. The vineyard's beautiful. I've been, I, I've been there. I've done it. I've done these tours. And they sign up for the wine club and they're super excited. But um, I just had a conversation with a friend who was in a wine club and um, I just, I just asked her, I was curious. I was like, well, why did you cancel? And she goes, because I had like 13 bottles of wine and I don't drink that much wine. And so that is a problem. But when I look around the wine industry, for example, I don't see the solution to that problem because nobody is looking at her as a customer and going through the data and evaluating what's happening with um, their wine club to the point of asking the question, Hey, why are you canceling? No, they just send you a thing. Will you please stay (laughs) instead of, Hey, you know, why? And so when I did research on specifically wine clubs, um, more often than not, in fact, I can't think of one that's different. Like, and I have researched a lot. I probably have looked at 150 to 200 wine clubs just in the last couple of months. Um, most of them offer three options. You either have two harvests that are twice a year and you can get a certain number of bottles you know, for those two harvests, or, um, they have three levels, which are just, um, this many bottles, this many bottles and this many bottles. Um, and they all ship at one time and that's pretty much it. Those are the only options. And so I would be curious in the wine industry. And I know that there are issues with compliance, but you're dealing with compliance anyway, is why is there not an option to have a ongoing subscription for people that want to buy once a month or buy a couple bottles a month or have the option to skip a month. Um, and so that to me would answer this other, um, problem or at least begin to answer it. Now, of course I would go and do a little bit more research with other wine club members and say, Hey, why are you canceling? Why aren't, you know, what's going on, um, before I implemented that change, but it would be worth, uh, diving in to see, you know, what that experience is so that when future customers come in, we have evaluated what that option is and give people the opportunity, um, to understand our options so we can figure out where to put them in our, um, pre-customer experience and ensure that we're giving them the right information that they want out of the gate. 
because the chances are when you can customize that for them, say, oh, they've said they, they drink two bottles of wine a month. They would be a perfect for, for this, for this part, this version of the wine club. And I'm not saying you have to make it complicated. You know, it, it's just a matter of restructuring what is already out there. Um, and so when we're thinking about those solutions and um, we're wanting people to move forward, the more we can gather about people and that can be done a million different ways. We're not going to go in that right into that right now, but um, is figuring out not only what is best going to suit our specific audience, our specific person, our specific clients that we already have and more people like them, but also um, how are we going to stand out from everybody else? In the industry now i just told you i just looked at 200 wine clubs and they're all the same so basically um you know it's peter robbing paul for marketing nobody's doing anything different and then they wonder why people aren't buying from their wine club well you have to deliver the same customer experience to someone who is not visiting your winery or your vineyard for a tour as you would to somebody who finds you in a different way and most businesses, whether you're in the wine business, a subscription business, a coaching business, um, a heating and air conditioning business are not doing that. It's a one fit size fits all solution. And what I'm saying is that one size fits all solution isn't going to work from here on out because people are smarter. They have more information at their fingertips and um, they are more empowered to make different decisions, especially younger buyer buying generations. So be aware of that. So step number two is to offer solutions that people actually want and not just create a solution that works for you. And then last but not least, um, this is probably one of my favorite quotes and really the reason that I do what I do. Um, and I, if you've been around a while, you've probably heard this, but it, it bears repeating is that I read a sales study. Um, it, it's probably been about six or nine months ago now, but that 97% of people that come into, um, connection with your brand initially when they learn of your brand and they find out who you are, they're not ready to buy yet. Most people and most businesses spend all of their effort, all of their money, all of their time, all of their energy on trying to get people to purchase, which is 3% of that 97. And then they're hoping that 10% of the 3%, which is less than one person is going to purchase. And so what I'm saying is like, let's shift the axis and focus our efforts on the other 97%. Because when we focus on them and we imply, we apply all of the things we just talked about, creating a really specific experience for them, creating solutions for them, for them specifically, when they're not ready to buy and we can nurture them and, and share um, more about our business and about our brand and why we're different and why we treat our customers differently. Because we know, because we gathered and put the customer data in a spreadsheet, um, we are better able to turn not only the 10% of that 97% into customers, but more like 50 or 60%. And so if you can increase, you know, your conversion rate on 
the leads that you already have simply by building a relationship with them? And does that mean like every person that comes in of that 97%, if you nurture them, is going to turn into a client? No, but it's significantly higher than taking a cold lead and turning them into a yes. And not only that, but when you take the time to nurture, nurture those people and follow up with those people and figure out why they didn't say no, why they didn't say yes right away, you might find that they're like, oh, I don't want a wine club that ships to me three day, three times a year. I want one that ships to me every month. And then I want to be able to skip it in January because it's dry January. You know, do you know what I'm, do you see what I'm saying here? Like the knowledge becomes your power and that power helps you convert more people into customers. And when you can convert more people into customers, they not only become customers once, they become lifetime customers. And that means you're spending less revenue, not only generating new leads, but you're um, spending less money um, on lead generation that isn't going anywhere. And so that's what I want you to think about instead of just um, focusing on, oh, we got to get more people through the door, more people through the door, which is a totally antiquated sales um, myth at this point, um, because you're better off to take those people you're getting through the door with advertising or promotions or however you're doing that and building over time a stronger foundation of customer because those customers then become your advocates. And that means you have to spend less money, less time and less energy getting outside leads because they're going to bring them to you. And those leads are hot. Those are people that have uh, word of mouth recommendations. They're the ones that they're going to um, tell friends about their experience with you. And then even if those friends don't come directly to you and they, um, you know, they, I don't want to say stalk. <laughs> That's the word. They stalk you for a while on social media. Um, the connection and the opportunity for connection is much higher than just some rando that is wandering into a retail store, hoping, you know, and praying that they find the right wine and they buy it because the label's pretty. Um, it, that is like throwing, you know, spaghetti against the wall and hoping it sticks. And that is not the wave. I, I wouldn't even say it's the wave of the recent past, but it's definitely not the wave of the future. So um, when you are thinking about how you're going to follow up with people, um, I have a couple things that uh, are kind of the norm <laughs> right now in a lot of industries. And I want you to avoid these and instead, I'm going to give you some examples of things you can do instead. So um, immediately when people think follow-up, they're like, oh, I need to send sales um, emails and coupons. And please don't do this. Like they've already said no thank you. And so you following up with, hey, buy this now. Here's a coupon is not improving the situation. Instead, look at it from the perspective of, okay, what other information do they need to make a decision? Make it more of a discovery. Um, open up curiosity about, about your customer and think and, and start asking questions instead of pushing your agenda. Because if they've already said no, that 97% has said, no, I'm not ready to buy it. And then you immediately start sending them coupons. What do you think is going to happen? What would, what would you do? You're going to throw those in the garbage. They're going to end up in spam. You're going to unsubscribe, whatever it might be. 
Whereas if you reached out and said, hey, I noticed you um, didn't purchase recently. And I'm just, I'm just curious, like what, you know, what, um, what happened? You know, it could be something as simple as like, hey, I'm just curious, like, you know, why did you decide this wasn't the right thing for you? Or are you just, you know, I just want to learn more. And you can, it can be a quick survey. It can be click this link. You could have three different answers depending on um, things you either suspect or know. And then you can gather more data and you can put it in your spreadsheet. And then you can figure out how to answer that in an email. Um, because there could just be one simple question you're not answering. And so um, rather than bombarding people with more sales opportunity emails, um, stop doing that, please. And do not reach out to people on LinkedIn and do that because it's so annoying and everybody hates it. Instead, get curious about your customers and start asking more questions. And then um, the other thing people do, <laughs> which I don't know which is worse, is they just don't email at all. They're like, nope, they didn't buy, bye. And that is such a disservice, not only to, to your customer, but also to your business. Because if you have the opportunity to have a conversation and open the conversation and learn and be curious about those people that didn't buy, it's an opportunity for you to not only build the trust and relationship with them, it's also the opportunity for you to learn immense amounts of knowledge about what is turning people on, turning people off, um, and give you the opportunity to make adjustments, micro adjustments and all of those things. So going back to the example of the restaurant, if, you know, they would have, if I would have just said, no, we're not going to have the party there, um, which I probably would have done if the choice would have been only mine, but it wasn't. Anyway, long story short is, um, if they would have come back to me and said, hey, we noticed that you reached out about a party and then you just didn't. Well, here's a better example. Um, we have a tree in the backyard that needs to be removed. And we, when we bought our house, the people that lived here before us planted the tree and it's way too close to the house. It's huge. It should have been removed like five years ago. We didn't have it done because I didn't want to kill the tree, but now it's like, going into the neighbors, it's like just a bad situation. So I had um, <clears throat> somebody come out and it was a referral, um, somebody my mom used, and they came out and it was like they couldn't be bothered. Oh, they didn't, it was obvious they didn't want to do the job. The quote was astronomical. It was about three times what it should have cost. And the guy was just like, I don't, I can't be bothered with you. And so I thought to myself, I'm like, oh, wow. Like if this is how you treat your customers, I, I wonder how many repeat customers you have. So then I called somebody else. Um, it was a company that had uh, trimmed the trees, like, I don't know, two or three years ago. And I was fairly happy with them. There's a couple things that I was just like, mm, you know, I wish they would have uh, done this. The, you know, like one thing was, I wish they would have just uh, trimmed more because now the trees, you know, it's a couple of years later and they need to be trimmed again. And so from a business model, maybe that's, you know, what, why they do it that way. I don't know. But, you know, overall, I was fairly satisfied. I, but one of the questions that they could have answered for me is, you know, why didn't you trim more off the tree? It could have been, an, I'm sure I'm not the only one that has that question. And so that could be an opportunity in an, in a follow-up email uh, for them to answer. 
And so if that's the case, um, you know, it's a great way for you to take that example and think about what that would be for your business. So anyway, when he came out, completely different experience. Um, very cordial, called me before he came, super nice, not deep conversation, but we had some conversation. He took pictures. Um, he knew that I was a previous customer. I didn't have to tell him that. Um, he, you know, gave me a better price because I was a repeat customer. He told me how long it was going to take. He's like, Oh, the problem is, is like, we can't get a stump grinder down here to grind the stump because of the, uh, our backyard is really steep. And so for them to get the equipment down there would be really difficult. And he's like, I am afraid that we would, you know, that this would break and we don't want to take the liability to do that. Even though we have insurance, like it's just not a good plan. I was like, yeah, I'm perfectly fine with that. And we have flagstone kind of around the tree and because the roots are, um, it's kind of buckling the, the flagstone. And so he's like, yeah, I, I can't promise this won't break. I'm like, well, it's going to need to be redone anyway, so I'm not going to worry about it. But all of these little pieces made for a much better customer experience because he actually took the time to explain and discuss and, um, answer questions that I hadn't even thought to ask before he got there. Whereas the other guy was just like, yeah, I can't be bothered. You need to take these steps out. We can't get, and it was just like completely ridiculous. And so which company do you think I'm going to refer in the future? I'm going to leave that to you, but I'm going to tell you it won't be the first one. So anyway, it gives us the opportunity when we have those interactions with people to you know, he could have said, Hey, what did you, you know, did anyone ask you when we came to trim this, if, if you wanted to take the tree out and I would, you know, because, or did they mention to you that you should probably have the tree removed? And I would have said, no, they didn't. Um, but that would have been an opportunity for them to then create content or emails or whatever it is around that, um, specific question. Like, when do you know you need to take a tree out? When is it too late? When are you running into trouble? When is it going to cost? And, you know, what's the cost comparison of waiting three to five years to take it out? Um, and so things like that are questions and information you can put into an email versus, hey, here's a coupon, buy now. Um, so I just wanted to give you that example. And then the other thing that... Um, the other opportunity that you're missing out on if you are not emailing people after they purchase is the opportunity to give them uh, the chance to buy in the future. If you're running a different promotion or you have a new product that maybe fits them better, or um, you're trying to gather information for a different solution and then pitch that solution to them as a, a, you know, initial buyer or a founding member or however you want to put it. Um, and so when you cut off communication and then you try to go back and pitch them later, they're going to be like, who is this? And they're going to either unsubscribe, send you to the spam box or whatever. And so rather than that, it's better to keep communications open and to, um, continue to engage and learn and ask questions and be curious so that when you do have a question and you want their feedback, um, 
you have insights from real customers and you're not guessing about what they want and what they need. And instead you can create um, offers and solutions and products that meet their needs that are possibly different than what you already offer. So if we go back to the wine club, that could be uh, a different club experience that is for virtual people only. And so, um, you know, maybe it's people that are friends of friends. It's a friends of friends club. And so um, you have to be invited in by another member and, you know, whatever you want to do. But I'm just saying that would be an opportunity for additional sales and to convert more of that 97% of people that you've already paid for as leads in one way, shape, form, or another. And so why not make the most of that lead generation by turning more of those people into customers. So one last thing is those follow-up emails and that follow-up um, conversation, it empowers you to lead with value, build trust before they purchase, and also um, build better relationships and conversations so that it not only provides data for your little template and spreadsheet, but it also, um, builds rapport with them so that even if they never become customers, they are going to talk about you and how you treated them in a positive manner to other people that might need your solution or your product. And then they may never become a customer, but if they do, um, how powerful is that to go into a relationship where you're already kind of bonded with the people, um, because they weren't in such a rush to push you to purchase. So, um, that is a wrap for this week. And if you missed anything during the show, all the show notes will be over on the website for, at dtcgrowthclub.com forward slash podcast. You can find all the notes over there. And if you've enjoyed this episode, stay tuned for next week and the following week because we'll be uh, talking about the customer experience during and after the sale with lots more examples. Um, and if you are watching on YouTube, I'd love for you to hit the subscribe button. If you are uh, listening on your favorite podcast app, you could also hit subscribe over there and leave a review. In the meantime, uh, I hope you have a wonderful week. I will see you next week. In the meantime, take care, stay safe, be well. Did you miss something in the show today? Didn't have time to take notes listening on the go? No worry, I've taken notes for you. You can head on over to DTC Growth Club dot com forward slash podcast and there will be links and a description to today's episode in the meantime take care stay well and i'll see you soon